You're listening to Writers Forum. I'm your host, Mike Tusa, and today we're privileged to interview author Gary Howell about his book, Little White Casket, Accepting the Grief and Loss of the Present, Confronting the Truth of the Past, and Reframing Towards the Future. Gary is a pastor and a life coach. He has a BA in theology and an MA in sociology and crisis counseling. Gary, welcome to the show. Oh, thank you for having me. Well, let's jump right in. Your book explores uh, grief and loss and how to get out of that or get through that, something all of us in varying degrees experience at one time or another. But in your case, it was indeed very personal, uh, as you lost two daughters at very young ages. Tell us about that, if you will, and how it crystallized for you the desire to write about this subject to help others. Well, uh, you know, we got married young. This was, my wife and I just celebrated 45 years uh, of marriage. She was 16 when we got married. So we were both young and a little bit naive and really kind of grew up in the typical all-American homes. Nothing bad ever happened. And so when our first child passed, it was uh, never had to never had to grieve like that. I don't know that I'd ever gr- grieved really before. And uh, I was actually just talking to a guy who grew up on a farm. He's just getting ready to turn 100. He said, you know, death was an everyday part of life, you know, 100 years ago. Uh, and, and we've been, in our culture, been kind of spoiled uh, because we don't really see it or, or have to be confronted with it. So when she died, it it just wrecked every every paradigm that I had. And by the way, as you said, I was a pastor, so I'm, you know, I'm studying for ministry, and that just didn't seem... Uh, didn't seem fair, you know. Here, God, I'm so giving my whole life to you, and you're doing this, and so I had to, I had to re wrestle through and then redefine uh, a lot of things. And I, and I don't know that I ever really just made serious notes, but I'm I'm very observant, and uh, I just re- realized like, well, I I grieve different than my wife. In fact, my wife was a crier, and so if I wasn't crying, she thought I wasn't grieving, and so it really it really caused me to do a deep dive on, because uh, you stated right at the very beginning, in some form or way, we all do grieve, and uh, and you can't quantify it or, or uh, qualify it in any way. Like, so when you lose a child like that, that is a, a level 10. But, you know, if you've never had grief in your life, and you come home and your spouse leaves you for, for another person, that feels like a level 10 yeah. until you experience something greater. So r- rather to uh, of comparing grief and seeing who's worse, it, it, it's all painful and it's all uh, wrestles against, uh, you know, that truth and lies. They both come at you at the same time. And uh, I realized uh, it's my, it's my obligation uh, for me to distinguish between what's true in all this and what's lies in all this. So it, it and it's funny that you mentioned that because um, I I'm almost obsessed. I do a lot of life coaching, speaking, counseling, and I I find I'm almost obsessed with trying to help people with pain uh, initially because I wanted to keep people from pain. But man, pain is a wonderful teacher uh, if if it's processed correctly. So I don't know that I try to keep people from pain, but I try to help them process it in a in a positive way that w- will make them bigger, stronger, better uh, when they work through it. And and for you, was writing this book part of, for lack of a better word, your recovery? Uh, yeah, great question, because I never wanted to do this. In fact, I, I've written a couple of other things, and I just, I, I, I knew I didn't want to because I had to open uh, some doors that I'd already sealed. But it was, it was really cathartic with me. And I, I would have said no if you asked me that as I was starting writing, but as you asked me here today, oh, absolutely 
Absolutely. It's been a college course all over again for me. Do you have, you know, I've talked to some authors who have written memoirs about someone close to them passing, for example, or that's a part of the memoir. And almost all of them say, you know, I still have trouble reading this chapter or two chapters or whatever. Do you have any difficulty when you go back to your book? Uh, I don't have difficulty reading it. There were some times I had trouble writing it. Mm -hmm. Uh, It's funny because my wife, uh, she proofed almost all of that. But man, when we got to the hard parts, I know she had to put it down. And and so our first daughter died 20, more, about 30 years ago. And so you'd think 30 years ago, there's enough time uh, to, to cover all that. But boy, when you, that's the weird thing about grief, that when you read, when you, it's presented to you again, it's timeless. It's way back there and it feels fresh, you know, so that, uh, I don't know that I had trouble reading it, but I do had, I did have trouble writing it. Um, so, and I didn't think I did. I thought I'd processed it all, you know, but I processed what I knew, you know, 20 years ago, and today's different. I've learned stuff, and so, hmm. in, you know, interesting. So, well, you know, one, yeah. one of the things I also hear from writers, especially in the memoir area, is that uh, writing is self-illuminating, and when they put pen to paper, or keyboard, if you will, they, <laughs> they, often, yeah. they often learn something they didn't expect to learn. Did you have that experience? Oh, absolutely. Uh, probably uh, a piece of that in almost every chapter. Uh, in fact, how I wrote is I kind of I made a skeleton of the different chapters, but the, a lot of those I changed uh, with with the great people at BSP Publishing. I had I had uh, some caseworkers along the way who would bring up like, hey, uh, you you said this in there. This would be the better focus of the chapter. And so, and, and I like boy when I did that it. Um, yeah, I learned. I learned a lot. Probably something, something small or something great, uh, in each in each chapter. In all honesty, yeah. Okay. Well, look, you do a great job in this book of weighing out. I hate to use this word because we hope nobody has to go through what you and your yes. wife have been through, but an instructional step by step. But before we turn to that, let me ask one other question. There, sure. There are several books out there on grieving and loss. Uh, I think of Ginsburg's Kaddish or Joan Didion's The Year of Magical thinking when you were going through the process and and either before or after you started writing your book were there authors that you turned to um yes uh, I, i've been a voracious reader my whole life which was part of my fear of not writing like i've read literally thousands and thousands of books and i kept saying is there anything new in my head am i actually repeating somebody i read but some uh, uh, and most of my most of the people i turned to came for more of the the spiritual re- religious world, who d- did a good job of connecting the spiritual with the the rea- reality. Uh, but uh, Charles Wendell was one, and then Paul Tripp. Uh, mm-hmm. He's a, a pastor who, by, even as we speak right now, is going through some horrific things. And 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 just a note here too, it's interesting. So uh, th- you asked me if I learned. I'm actually learning now uh, things I'm re- rereading in my book. So I pushed send on my manuscript to the publisher and i had a weird premonition three months well so back in february they, they published last uh, november so this february i went to the doctor and they uh, found that i had cancer i've been battling cancer since february oh my goodness yeah and well. so i'm thinking well that doesn't uh, some of this was preparatory work too i thought it was re- retelling the past but some of it's been preparatory for what i'm going through that's an interesting observation well let's talk specifically about your book okay and in yeah. particular 
Um, in the book, you start off, I think this is one of the, after doing some explanation, you start off with a great way to do and that is talk about the four myths about grief. Grief, excuse yeah. me. Yeah. Um, yeah. Would you, and if you don't mind reading that section, would you read the section on the four myths about grief? Oh, I, I would love to. And as I, before I start, let me prep it that as you try to process something, you the the initial thing is to be open-minded and say, or is what I'm believing true or is it false? So you have to really, once you distinguish between truth and false, uh, myths and reality, it helps the process. So yeah, it's a, uh, was called that this section was called dispelling the myths and the, and I prepped it by talking about you have to be honest with yourself and honesty uh, is used to dispel the subtle deception of myths and okay. a few myths regarding uh, and a few myths regarding grief are as this so then uh, myth number one is that is that men don't grieve as much as women do the truth is we all grieve in different ways and at different levels men get trapped by stereotypical perceptions of how men are supposed to act. I believe the biggest contributor to how one grieves is their cultural upbringing and the modeling they've had is installed by their belief system. More than their gender, in chapters 4 and 5, we will dig deeper into what causes a belief system. Myth number two, if you're not outwardly grieving, you're not really grieving. This assessment is so unfair, especially in light of stage one's grieving, which which really is denial when I talked about, I talked about the different avenues of of grief. Denial creates a sensation of numbness and detachment. So outward expressions of grief, such as crying, weeping out loud, or open depression, may not serve as an accurate sign to whether someone is actually grieving or not. Myth three, grief gets better over time. The old proverb that says time heals all wounds is not accurate in all cases, because the truth is grief follows no certain timeline. Maybe in cases where the emotional pain is less severe, such as grieving a relational breakup or a disappointment in a non-essential outcome, might increase the likelihood that time will bring some resolve. But with intense emotional cases like death or divorce, there are no timelines in which you can predict or speed up your healing process. Myth four, grief endpoint comes when you get the answers. I think the response to the, this myth is yes and no. Grief is not something that just goes away when it has run its course, because it because it's uh, when it's run its course because in its wake it has left collateral damage as well as an intricate trigger system that can be activated at any time and any place. There is a common belief that grief ends when you finally get closure. However, sometimes real closure comes without any defining answers, but simply comes in the way in which you are able to move forward while you're handling the grief, the pain and the loss. That is really excellent. And, you know, for somebody who perhaps for the first time is having to deal with grief, this really lays out um, a step-by-step as to what you can expect or, or what you must dispel. Let me ask you a couple more questions about this process, okay? Yeah, You suggest sure. in the book that the way to overcome or acknowledge grief and loss is through, and these are things that you cite, honesty, mindfulness and through relationships that help you move from acknowledgement to acceptance. Am I understanding that correctly? Yeah. Yeah. All right. Yeah, well, they're, they're all, they're all sub points, but yeah, they play uh, each in their own way, play a very significant role in the, well, in the grieving process. All right. Let's talk, try to define, have you define those so people understand. So let's start with honesty. Tell us what you mean by honesty in the context of dealing with grief. Well, honesty is, uh, it, it's a, 
a cousin of of mindfulness, but honesty is just to, just to say uh, it's to tell yourself the truth. Um, you'll you'll hear certain things. A lot of times, people take try to take responsibility for grief. If I had just done this, and maybe I should. Well, the truth is, sometimes things were going to happen outside of your control. And so just to be honest with where, where I am, and then to say, I see this mostly in men when I talk about the man part, but, uh, hey, how are you doing today? I'm doing fine. Well, the truth is you're not doing fine. And I think if you keep reinforcing a lie in your head, you add A to the shame that you give on yourself, and and then B, you, you uh, push back the grief, and you can only push it back so far, and, mm-hmm. and then you, you've created a void that either going to fill it or all the griefs coming back with power. So I think just being honest with yourself, not so much with everybody else, it's just being honest with yourself. You know, you said something in there that I'm curious about. I hadn't hadn't intended to ask, but you struck a chord with me. How do you handle the platitudes that you get, you know, from folks who, good meaning, well-meaning, uh, yeah. but say, uh, oh, Gary, I'm, uh, you know, hang in there, right? Yeah. yeah that, that was... Uh, Interesting you brought that up because I was just telling this with someone yesterday. That was probably the hardest thing of the whole process because, I again, that's being honest. I had to stop and say, because I always always say, if I don't know something, I work backwards till I do know something. So when you give me a platitude, it seemed, it seemed insincere and like, but I had to stop and say, they, they don't know what to say here. They don't mm-hmm. like to watch me in pain. So they're saying the best thing they knew how. And, and so that kind of sucked the, the negative power out of it. Uh, but then they would, you know, the, the cliches that, I, uh, that moving forward, I've tried not to use. Oh, you know, they're in a better place, and uh, you know, God needed another little rose for His garden. Well, in the moment, that wasn't healing at all. It, it sometimes just it poured a little gasoline on a fire. But I had to go back to a, I, I know you, and you're not trying to hurt me. B, you're actually trying in your own way to comfort me as best as you can, but you just don't know how. And so the platitudes lost any kind of uh, power or impetus uh, in my thinking. I just thought, well, you know, thank you. I'm not really listening. I'm watching your lips move, and I know your heart is to help me. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Th- good good response. Now, listen, let's keep going with this. Uh, so yeah. after honesty, you talk about mindfulness um, as yeah. a way to help overcome grief. And if I can get you to explain that, that would be really helpful. Yeah. Mindfulness uh, sounds all new agey, but it's really, it's really in all t- types of counseling. It's really important that I start with this. So mindfulness just says, I have to really, uh, once I'm honest with each, with myself, I do some investigative work and some introspection and I find, uh, these are my patterns. I mean, if I'm aware, so if I know that doing this, saying this, or being around someone is going to trigger my grief and pain, I have to know that going in. Cause if I don't, next thing I know, I'm knee deep into grief, but, but I know myself and I know how I think, and I know what triggers me. I've, I've now removed the temptation or the power for that. So it's just being uh, aware of how I think, the patterns of how I think, the the people who either A, trigger me or the situations that trigger me. It's just being high, highly aware of myself and how I respond to things. And when you do that, you, you're way ahead of the game. You know, well, way ahead of the game. I, I found it, in, let's stick with mindfulness just for a moment, but I found it interesting that you cite what, what I at least think of as a Buddhist notion of mindfulness in the book, but then you uh-huh. also, in other places, you cite biblical passages to support your point. What role do you think spirituality plays, regardless of denomination or name we give it, uh, in the healing process? Oh, I mean, it's big, and, and people—that was some of the things people would say to me. Well, you're just using your religion as a crutch. Well, I guess in the true definition of crutch, maybe, but 
to be an atheist is to have a crutch, too. So when you remove those silly comments, uh, it plays a big role. But that's, again, part of where mindfulness and honesty uh, come together is, you know, if you got four different people with four different denominations, or I call it, you know, tribe, the way you were raised tribally, you have different opinions. So it, it, it plays a big role in helping you define what you even believe spiritually. What is there's, there's truth and myths even in your spirituality. So it, it, it sounds like a lot of work, but some of this just happens naturally. Some of this introspection, even into my spirituality, like I, I've seen God in a totally different way than I did when I was in Bible college or when I was pastoring as a young guy. Um, based on experiences and based on my own personal experiences. But I will tell you, looking back, that without that spiritual component, me, myself, uh, I'm not sure I could have weathered the whole storm. It was what I believed about my spirituality and and God and the Bible that really served as a foundation and that I tethered myself to. And as I sometimes allowed my emotions to come in, I felt myself floating away. I was always tethered to that truth. And uh, it, it was a lifesaver at, at certain times. Well, you, you have counseled folks, many folks, I'm assuming, through grief. When you, oh, yeah. When you dealt with somebody who is, say, not of your denomination or not of your yep. religious belief, how do you handle that component? How, how should well, someone handle that component? Yeah, and that's hard because the last thing you want to do is try to proselytize or, or mm-hmm. preach at them. But I, I do know that. So my, my spirituality is my anchor, and everybody has an anchor. There's something that they believe that's their anchor. So I do. I have to ask a lot of kind of diagnostic questions to find out what is their anchor, and then we, we, we point out what that anchor is, and then we keep referring back to it so they can at least tether their emotions to, to something they truly believe. And, uh, and, and it's funny because they, sometimes they, they'll say they're agnostic or they don't believe in spirituality, but some of their anchors are actually quite <laughs> spiritual, you know, uh-huh. when, you, when you start to uh, diagnose what they are. And, and, you know, I've watched people change their form of who, uh, ideas of who God is and what spirituality is going through this process, because nothing will nothing will open up your mind uh, in the process of healing grief. It's like if you don't open your mind, you'll just stay you'll stay tethered to grief, and that's a hard way to live life, you know, yeah, really is. Yeah. Well, all right, so in the book, you also, one of the third things you cite is relationships as an mm-hmm. important element in overcoming grief. Um, yep. I think I know what that means, but I'd really like you to tell our listeners a little more about how that plays into the recovery. I'm, I keep calling oh. it recovery. I'm not sure that's the right word. but No, um, that's a good word, yeah. Uh, well, relationships are, are important. In fact, if, if you have anyone with a, a basic biblical knowledge knows at the very beginning when God created it, uh, Adam and then all the animals, he looked at Adam and said, it's not good that you're alone. He created us for relationships. That's how we're wired you know, uh, someone may be single for a lot of years, but there is someone there for them. So uh, relationship in the sense that, uh, well, just talk about my wife and I married for uh, the first time, only married for four years. And the last one, we were married for uh, 20-something years. And sometimes when I was strong, uh, she would be weak. When she was, uh, when I was weak, she was strong. So that relationship really worked together. But Sometimes I just needed a, a third party, someone who wasn't close to the situation, but I knew cared for me. And uh, their their time and effort given to me was also in, uh, really encouraging. I had, a, I had a friend who was going through a divorce, a really bad divorce, and I was going over to his house every night. And that's when we found out my daughter was going to get a intensive care. And so he came up to the hospital every single night until she passed. And then later he told me, you know what helped me? 
through my divorce was pouring my life into you. That relationship, you know, that takes yourself away from yourself. So on the, on the other person's part, it's getting out of their own head and pouring into me. And for me, it was allowing someone to bring uh, a different point of view, a different paradigm of thinking, or just sometimes he would come and just sit with me, never say a word. And that's all I needed at the moment. Uh, so sitting there, uh, by myself in silence was much more painful than sitting there with someone who I knew was there for me. And so that the, the strength and the power that comes from really kind of God create is for relationship. I, I think, in fact, if I was going to put them in any kind of uh, like a order of importance, I might stick that one right up the top, even before uh, honesty and uh, mindfulness, even though those play a, a big role. But just from the soothing of one's grief and spirit, I think relationship probably is one of the most powerful ones that, I, that we mentioned there. Yeah, you know, I think about um, people who know you and who are kind of a reference point for you are often mm-hmm. invaluable in the process. Not that others can't be, but are often invaluable because there's an, it, there's a level of trust there, right? Yes, yes, yeah. <laughs> you know, I, I would say that before, like, I would be with this friend, and then I, people would ask me, how are you doing? I'm like, oh, I'm doing good. You know, and as soon as they leave you, look, he goes, you're a liar. You're lying to yourself again because <laughs> you're not doing it. You know what? I needed that. I needed that check. I needed that call because it's true. And again, if you live in the lying part of this, it takes you down a path that somewhere has a very, you know, there's a critical mass at the end of that path. So uh, the friendship and the relationship there, you know, kept me pretty much on course, which I needed when, when I'm, I'm such a people pleaser that I didn't want somebody to feel bad that I was feeling bad. So I acted like I was good. And he would call me on it every time in which I do. I appreciate it. I didn't appreciate it in the moment, but I look back and like, I really appreciated that, you know? Yeah. I think sometimes the folks that challenge us are the, the most important to us. Oh, absolutely. Um, yeah. All right. So let and me... there's a different challenge that comes from mm-hmm. a friend and a spouse. Cause sometimes, yeah, Correction by a spouse has a totally different emotional makeup to it. So <laughs> that's an yeah. excellent point. Yes. Yeah. All right. So in this process, and I know we're condensing this because of the, the length of the show, but you yeah. say basically, if one succeeds, okay, in going through this process that you've wind, they get to a place of acceptance, right? And you uh-huh. you kind of talk about some of the benefits of that place. Could you tell us a little bit about? the benefits as you see them once one gets to acceptance. And just so it's clear for the listener, it's not about forgetting, right? Oh, absolutely not, yeah. Okay. No, in fact, as you say that, I think it's important here to note that, uh, of course, again, I'd I'd mentioned I grieve totally different than my wife. And I remember uh, maybe three months after my daughter passed, I'd come home and my wife would be sitting in the baby's bedroom, rocking in the chair, maybe holding a pair of her pajamas. And I can't, you know, I would go into my best, you know, Jerry Seinfeld, try to tell Joe, get her out of, out of the room. Yeah. What I realized I did later down the road is I interrupted her grieving process, you know, because I wanted hers to be like mine, but I remember asking her like, why do you do that? And she said, I feel like if I don't do this, I'm going to forget her. Well, the truth, again, now we go back to honesty or truth or false. The truth is you'll never forget her, you know, but in that moment, that's, that's, how the lies come at you, you're going to forget them. So you stay in a negative grieving process. Uh, and so acceptance means it doesn't mean you forget. It just means I'm, I'm uh, identifying the truth and I'm making a choice. It's all based, it's all based on choice, you know, and I, I, I cited in the book, uh, there's three things that lead up to choice. It's, it's your focus. Am I focusing on what I do have or what I don't have? Am I focusing on what I can control or what I can't control? And am I focusing on the past and not the future? So if you answer it in the negative to all of those, it'll keep you, it'll keep you chest deep into depression. But when you, 
when you're honest and you accept it, okay, I, I, the truth is, truth is, she's passed. Now what am I going to do? Um, and and it, it doesn't, it softens the blow. It doesn't remove it, as you said. So uh, it, it's really, it's like the end game of being honest. I realize it. Here I am. Now my choice is I can sit in this room and wallow the rest of my life. And if you have other children or other friends at their expense, sometimes I've, I've dealt with people who've lost a child and because they couldn't get out of that place and accept the truth, I, I watched the relationship with their other children shrink and almost disappear. Mm-hmm. It was never the mother's intention for that, but she hadn't accepted her place and, and moved on. And uh, I love that you said that it's not about forgetting because that's what people always say. It's not, it, you know, you never forget stuff like that. Well, I read. Yeah, I read somewhere, and I wonder if this fits. And and if you've had experience with this as a counselor, and maybe even in your own life, I read somewhere that at some point in the process, and the quote was, "Grief becomes remembrance." Close quote. Um, Mm. Have you found that to be true with folks that succeed at this? Yeah, yeah, and 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 memories are are really kind of amoral. They're neither neither good nor bad. It just really depends on the definition you give them. So if I uh, and, and I, I talked about that in the last section, mm-hmm. which is the more more positive. It's called just reframing. So if I reframing means I, I if I change the definition of something, I also change the emotions that go with it. So when I look back, if I want to only if I want to think about the horrible nights in the hospital and the countless doctors and the tubes and the all of that, th- that memory becomes bad. But uh, when I think about just the, the joy we had and the fun we had as a family, that, that, those memories become positive and uplifting. Um, and, and really, then it, it's like you get the choice in, in remembering. Like, if, if you relive something, you relive those emotions. Or if you just think back and see it from like a, uh, a third-party position, you're watching it instead of reliving it, that changes the whole you know, emotional makeup. So, yes, I would say yes and no, grief is remembrance but like what how do i choose to define what i remember well is that is that actually and maybe this is what you were just talking about with reframing you say at some point in the book don't get stuck in an old story um is that what you're talking about Uh, that's exactly it yeah so uh, so the truth is you could you could read my book and you say well i I would change this and change that but you can't change it because i'm the author of this book i'm the author (laughs) of my story too and If I get stuck in an old story, I, what goes along with that are the relationships of the old story, the feelings of the old story, the, the negatives of the old story. So I, I'm really in charge of changing that, turning my memories. Uh, and all my, some people say, well, it sounds like you're, uh, you're manipulating your own mind. Okay, if that's what you want to say. But I'm, it's a choice. I'm choosing to reframe the, the situation into a positive because it's better for me, it's better for my wife, it's better for moving on, it's better for people come to know me. So, yeah, that's exactly what I'm saying. You know, I, I hate to keep quoting stuff, but you, as I'm listening to you, I'm struck by, and I can't remember who said this, but be careful the stories you tell yourself or you'll surely end up living them. And it's, yes. that's, that is in part what you're addressing here, isn't it? No, absolutely. In fact, I was just with a a, white, a woman who kept who told me uh, I just she gets overwhelmed by depression and it just comes on me. I can't. I don't have control. And as we as we dove into that story, I said, "Well, can you can you do that right now? Can you show me? Because I'm really not good at this." And she sat down and got herself in depression. So I had to call her on. I said, "Well, you told me it just happened, but the truth is." You made that happen, and you know exactly what to do to get yourself into this state. So her lie was, I have no control over my depression. The truth is, yeah, you have you have a lot of control over it, you know, because you're the author of your story and and the and the words in the story that you tell yourself. 
So that's, I think if I had one overall message, I'm, I'm trying to say, here's like grief. There's no way you can sugarcoat grief. It's painful. It hurts. But on the other side, it, it's, uh, it's a teacher. It's, uh, it changes things. It shows you who's friends and who's not. It changes a lot of dynamics. And how do I get to that point? It's me. I can't, my wife can't change that. My friends can't change. I have to make conscious choices to move from the grief, pain and loss to healing and happiness and hope. My job. Okay. That is unfortunately all the time we have for today. You've been listening to Writers Forum. I'm your host, Mike Tusa, and I've been talking with Gary Howell, author of the book, A Little White Casket, Accepting the Grief and Loss of the Present, Confronting the Truth of the Past, and Reframing Towards the Future. Gary, thank you so much for oh, talking with us today. Thank you for having me. I appreciate it. All right. Well, folks, until next time. 